Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. So the issue here, if COVID-19 shots are going to become routinely recommended, uh, even once the pandemic ends, then any alleged injuries from those shots would need to be handled by a 36-year-old program that hasn't been updated since it was originally started. And that means even more of a workload on top of an already burdened staff. I'm Annie Reese. This is Politico Dispatch. And this... Hey, I'm recording. ...is Lauren Gardner. And I cover FDA for Politico. Talking about the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. And this has been a long-standing issue, but it's just, it's so tricky. It's so tricky to deal with because... I I do think part of this, you know, from talking to a few folks about it, is people are reluctant to talk about vaccine injuries because no one wants to look like an anti-vaxxer. On the show today, why already overburdened and backlogged vaccine injury compensation programs are getting more complicated right when people need them the most. That's a huge thing that's out there is this this myth that vaccines kill or hurt more people than they help, mm-hmm. you know, and there have been lots of untruths and, and pieces of misinformation that have floated around out there that predate COVID but have been amplified and exacerbated by COVID, right? Mm-hmm. But injuries do happen, and we have seen specific adverse events that have been associated with COVID vaccination, like uh, this rare blood clotting issue after certain people have gotten the Johnson & Johnson shot. Myocarditis and pericarditis after the Moderna or Pfizer shots. You know, these things do exist. And it's important to acknowledge that and have a way to compensate people for that. But it's been tricky for lawmakers and policymakers to kind of walk that line between acknowledging it and trying to to deal with it and not wanting to (laughs) come off as, you know, that person who's talking about vaccine injuries and, you know, inadvertently scaring people. So Congress created the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program in 1986. Like, tell me about it. What is it? What does that program do? So this program came to be because there had been a raft of lawsuits filed by people claiming that they or their children were injured by vaccines. And there was a really intense concern that this would chill not only manufacturing of vaccines, but also just general uptake of them. And so Congress came together and decided, you know what, let's create an alternative to the legal system, the tort system as we know it, and create a no-fault alternative where people can submit claims. They're vetted by a federal court. And if the court finds that there was more likely than not some kind of injury sustained from the vaccine, you can get compensated for your pain and suffering. So this program has been in existence for nearly 36 years but it hasn't been updated at all. And when I say it hasn't been updated, I mean like structurally, you know, Mm there have been no changes. There's the same number of, they're called special masters who -hmm. who consider these cases. That hasn't changed. But what has changed is the number of vaccines that are covered by the program. Because initially it started out with six common childhood immunizations, and now we're up to 16. So the sheer number of shots that are potentially, you know, if you get the shot and something happens to you where you might be eligible to get a payout, it's nearly tripled. 
And so what were some of the vaccines originally covered and what are some of the ones that it's grown to? Originally, you know, things like measles, polio, and it's grown to include HPV is on the list now. That's, you know, become a vaccine recommended within the last, you know, 20, 25 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and influenza, that was actually kind of the big addition to the what they call the vaccine injury table. Because as you know, flu shots are recommended not just for kids, but for adults too. So it just opened up a whole new level of the potential for there to be claims just because the sheer number of people being covered now was so much larger. Mm -hmm. There's been a a pretty steady uptick in the number of claims that are filed each year. And the vast majority of those are people who claim to have been injured by flu shots. And what are examples of these negative side effects or these injuries? What are kind of the range of reactions? A lot of them are administration problems. So shoulder injuries from people Mm. who, you know, maybe the person who administered the vaccine to you didn't quite get it right, whether like not quite in the right muscle or, you know, something like that. So Mm. it can be things as innocuous as that. I don't say innocuous to downplay it, but it's a shoulder injury. It's not someone alleging that they nearly died from a vaccine, but these injuries can really affect a person's quality of life and might affect what you're able to do day in and day out for a period of time. And what is the compensation that the program provides look like? Right now, there's a cap on how much compensation you can get for injuries or deaths, and it's 250000 Uh That doesn't necessarily mean you would get that much if you submitted mm-hmm. a claim. I will hazard a guess that most are not quite that high. And there's actually legislation in Congress that, you know, while it would also address some other structural issues with the program updated a bit, one of the things that it would do would be to increase that cap to 600000 and also allowed to be adjusted for inflation. Um, so, you know, if you think about it, I I can't do inflationary figures off the top of my head, but $250,000 back in, you know, the mid-80s, that looks a lot different nowadays. For sure. So it seems like the current problem then you were saying is basically that there was already a backlog of people who needed compensation or who filed for compensation, weren't getting it. And now, kind of on top of that, there are people who have had negative COVID vaccine reactions, and that backlog has just grown. First, I should make clear that when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines and other COVID treatments, devices that have been used um, to treat people with COVID-19, that's covered under a different program. So Mm -hmm. during the 2009-2010 H1N1 pandemic, the government created a different program that is focused specifically on pandemic, what they call countermeasures. So Mm -hmm. that can mean a vaccine, a drug, a device, something like that that was developed specifically to address a public health emergency that's been declared. So it's slightly different in that, you know, there's an acknowledgement in this program that it's a pandemic. We're figuring things out as we go. So we're going to develop things and hope they they work well, but there's a level of risk involved in that. So we'll have a separate program to potentially entertain claims from people who say they were injured by them. Now, that program before 2020 had gotten a total of about 500 claims. Most of them uh, were from the H1N1 vaccine. Mm. It, they're now up to about 8,500. 8,500, make that clear. Um, and 5,000 of those have been for COVID-19 vaccines. So if you just look at the sheer number there of you know how many people are claiming that they have been injured by vaccines and this isn't taking into account you know how many of these are you know actually valid claims but just looking at that sheer number and 
thinking, okay, people are talking about ending the public health emergency declaration, and that has, you know, follow-on effects that eventually will trickle down to FDA and to the vaccines that have been authorized under emergency use. What happens when that ends? And, you know, looking even further ahead, it seems pretty likely that CDC will routinely recommend COVID vaccines for use for everyone, mm-hmm. for, you know, in perpetuity. <laughs> um, COVID's here to stay. This is probably something that is going to be recommended that people get vaccinated against every year or so. No one knows the exact timeline yet, but it's going to be like the flu recommendation, most likely. Mm-hmm. So if you add another vaccine like the flu that people get every so often, likely every year, and you know, just looking at the sheer number of claims that people have filed for the flu shot, can the existing standard vaccine injury program handle the weight of that? And the answer is no. It doesn't look good. <laughs> <laughs> so what fixes the backlog? Is, is some of that issue that you were talking about, like why Congress hasn't acted on this? There's still an open question about, you know, what exactly would this cost? But the fund itself is funded by industry because it's an excise tax on each dose of vaccine that's administered. And mm. industry supports this. You know, they want a, the no-fault system to continue. It behooves them to keep it going. So there's just a lot of unknowns out there about why exactly this isn't moving. But, you know, there are a couple of healthcare related pieces of legislation that are moving this Congress where it would seem that this could be sort of a logical amendment. Um, You know, there's a pandemic preparedness legislation Mm -hmm. that the Senate may consider later this session. There's also a package of bills to reauthorize FDA user fees. Mm -hmm. And that's considered must pass and needs to move by the end of the fiscal year. And of course, there's always, you know, annual spending packages. This type of thing could uh, hitch a ride on something like that. So it seems like this program has been messed up for years in the sense that it has been underfunded and there hasn't been enough people to address this backlog. So why did this catch your eye now? Like, why is it important or relevant, especially now? That's a great question. So I I actually first was made aware of it by talking to someone who developed myocarditis after receiving his second, I believe, Pfizer vaccine for COVID. And, you know, he was telling me about how he was waiting to file a claim with the pandemic-specific program because he wanted to see if this legislation would move that would potentially move up the timeline for a COVID vaccine to be shifted under the Vaccine Injury Compensation Fund, the the standard one that's been around since the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I kind of had it in, filed away in the back of my mind for a little while and then realized, like, oh, you know, I, I did a little digging and saw that this bill wasn't going anywhere, but that it had gotten some attention in a hearing last summer. And, you know, over the course of some reporting I've done about folks who have developed some of these conditions after COVID vaccination, realized, you know, this is potentially going to be a huge issue. And, you know, started talking to more people about it, patient advocates, lawyers who focus specifically on vaccine injuries and industry itself, and realized, oh, wow, there's, you know, broad consensus here that there's an issue and it should be fixed. And they've all kind of coalesced more or less around, you know, a legislative approach to that. But this isn't going anywhere. (laughs) And just looking at the number of claims that have been filed specific to the COVID shots for the pandemic program, you know, Mm -hmm. all you have to do is look at that side by side 
with the other vaccine program and you see that, you know, there's a cliff coming here. Uh, why isn't anyone, you know, sounding the alarm on this? Lauren Gardner, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Also in the news, in response to baby formula shortages that have sent parents scrambling for supplies, the Biden administration has reached a deal to transport 1.25 million cans of baby formula from an Australian company into the U.S. Lawmakers and others have been raising questions about why the Biden administration didn't take steps on importing formula until May. President Biden said that he didn't realize the seriousness of the infant formula shortages until early April. According to two Biden officials, the president wasn't briefed on the formula crisis for weeks after Abbott's original formula recall on February 17th. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening.